Uh, with the Lord's help, let us turn to the chapter we read in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and our text is in the words of verse 47 at the very end of the chapter. It says, They were praising God and having favour with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. There is um, sometimes a certain irony in our own situation as a small church. We are quite often asked, or we ask amongst, we ask amongst ourselves sometimes, about the frequency of the Lord's Supper. We have it, of course, twice a year in our congregations, and uh, therefore in the presbytery a number of times every year, and the communion season seems to come round faster and faster, but still we're asked sometimes why we don't have that sacrament more often. But sometimes we don't realise that we do have the Lord's Supper far more often than that other great New Testament sacrament of baptism. Baptism, of course, is a once and forever sacrament for us. But as our congregations sometimes age, it is also becoming an increasing rarity in our congregations. So, for some time, I've been hoping to return to the study of baptism with you as a congregation. We did look at it before, but it is many years since. I think it is nearly 13, 14 years ago since we looked at it on a midweek series. But it's important to keep sight of both sacraments, whether we actually have the experience of them in the congregation or not. We are not to forget about the institution of the Lord's Supper for the 10 months of the year we don't have it. Neither we to forget about the institution of baptism because of the same reason. Both are institutions of Christ. That is the definition of a sacrament. These special gifts of Christ to his church until his return. But although that was in my mind for some time, I became more resolved, I think, to consider it more recently. I was discussing with uh, another of our ministers this subject, and he was sharing with me the prospect of possibly going through his entire ministry and not conducting a baptism. And in some of our congregations that may well be possible if the man is in an elderly congregation for a length of time. And that may or may not happen, of course, but baptisms are becoming rarer in many ways. But it's still important to think about it and to study it. No reason we shouldn't know why we believe what we believe and we should understand what the church's position is and we should be like the Bereans checking the scriptures to make sure that these things are according to the word of God and also it has a more personal application of course because for every one of us it marks us you are all baptised we are therefore marked 
and touched with this mark of baptism. Whether it was in adulthood or whether it was in infancy. Even though it was only once. <coughs> to be baptised matters. To be a baptised person matters. Even if we are faced with it far less frequently than the Lord's Supper. It is precious. Now, as you will all be aware, baptism is a large subject and one that has generated plenty of debate amongst different believers over the years and by no means, I hope, am I sufficiently naive as to think that a short study in our midweeks will solve all the questions that there are around baptism. And in one sense, the, the divide that exists uh, between uh, within the Christian church is really, you can make a single divide around the issue of baptism. There are those who admit only adults to the sacrament of baptism on profession of faith. They alone are to be baptized. And there are also those who admit adults on profession of faith, but also our children into uh, the sacrament of baptism. So these have a fundamental division within the Christian church. And we should try to understand that and its scope as best as we can. However, to begin with this evening, I want us to lay some of the crucial groundwork for the subject. Can't you? just quite yet start straight out on baptism, although we'll be referring to it quite substantially in the sermon. But I want us to look at the scope and the breadth of the church. The sacraments are, by definition, Christ's gifts to his church. They only make sense in the context of the church. That is why they are not to be administered privately. And that is why in their absence, whatever other else a Christian body might be, it is not a church. And so, for example, the um, Salvation Army wouldn't consider themselves, and we wouldn't consider them to be, strictly speaking, a church, a denomination, because they do not administer the sacraments. And so, these are not private matters, they belong to the church properly as such. But they are then ours as Christ's gift. They belong to us in the sense that they are gifted to us. They are not the churches in the sense that the church can revoke them, change them, adapt them or adopt them. We can only take them and hold them as they have been given to us. They are ours in the sense that we are to keep them inviolate until Christ returns. And so if we do not understand the church, or if we have an understanding of the church but it is substantially flawed, then we, were, we will always have a flawed view of the sacraments. 
and especially, as we will see, of the sacrament of baptism. The sacrament of baptism rests upon the doctrine of the church. Now, baptism is already a huge subject. The doctrine of the church is even bigger, because it includes baptism as well as everything else that goes with it, and the other sacrament of the Lord's Supper, and the governance of the church, and all other aspects of church uh, belief and faith and practice. It's a huge area. But there are some key areas of that doctrine that help us set the context for the sacraments in general and for baptism in particular. So we're not going to have a whole massive study in the church before we get anywhere near the study of baptism, or we'll be here for years. But we are going to have this service given over more directly to the subject of the church, and then from there move on more particularly to baptism in the weeks that are ahead. So this evening, as we begin, we are studying baptism under the heading of a sacrament of the church. A sacrament of the church. We have four things to be said here. We have here one church, a wide church, a welcoming church, and a watered church. These are the four <coughs> points this evening. First of all then, and importantly, one church. First point is really a doctrine in itself. I want to affirm what scripture teaches. There is only one church. At whatever point in history you go to, no matter how many denominations you might see sprung up around you, there is only one true church. Christ does not have many bodies. He has one body. He is not building many temples. He is building one temple. And so there is only one church. And it doesn't even matter if you to stretch right back, not just nowadays when there are proliferation of denominations, but if you were to go right back to before the coming of Christ, into the Old Testament dispensation, you would still say there is one church, the same church. And unless and until we understand this exact point about one church, we will have a flawed understanding of baptism. It is crucial. Now later we will spend time on exactly why it is important, but I'm afraid just for the sake of the way we have to work this through, if you allow me to simply assert that and leave it there as a bold statement, it is crucial to the understanding of baptism to understand that there is only one church. So we have to support that assertion in some way. Is the church of the Old Testament a different church to the church of the New Testament? Or is it the same thing? Our text here at the end of chapter 2 of Acts says, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now this is the first use of the word church in the New Testament after the resurrection. 
In fact, even before this, the word church is only used twice, only from the lips of Christ himself, and within the span of three chapters in Matthew, in Matthew 16 and in Matthew 18. In chapter 16, the Lord tells Peter that he is going to build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's the first use of the word church in the New Testament. Two chapters later, the Lord has given instructions to his disciples what they are to do in the event of having a disagreement with a brother, a brother has fallen into sin, or there's been some dispute between them, he is to go to that brother privately, personally, first of all. If he fails to get satisfaction, he is to bring a brother with him. He is to speak to him. If they fail to get satisfaction, he is to go and tell it to the church. These then are the two instances you tell it to the church. But apart from these two this is the first case of it in the New Testament. And it occurs very tellingly on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost marks, if you like, the particular beginning of the fullness, the full privileges of the New Testament church. That day the promised spirit comes. And the church is <clears throat> filled with the presence of Christ in his spirit and equipped for her mission and calling to be the church of Christ in the world. So it's a very significant day at the end of which it is said and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. There is a clear New Testament emphasis then, uh, bringing it in here on this word, church. The word is, you may have heard it, ecclesia. So we speak of things ecclesiastical. And it comes from this Greek word, ecclesia. The word means to call out, literally. Ek is like the same as we have exit, going out. And ecclesia, the KNL, is like cal or call. So it is to call out. Those who are called out are the church. The word generally would mean a gathering of some people who are kind of gathered together. And so it has come to be directly and formally referenced to the body of the Lord's people as the church on earth. So on the very first day of full New Testament blessings, the day of Pentecost, the Bible tells us that something called the church is already in existence because the Lord adds to the church such as should be saved and daily he isn't beginning his church he is adding to something that is already there the church is in existence it is a clearly identifiable term it isn't a new word that's been parachuted in here it's not a brand new institution, but it's an expanding institution. It's a growing institution. Now, if you rewind a few verses in our chapter where we read to Peter's famous closing words of application and exhortation at the end of his sermon on the day of Pentecost, there from verse 38, 
We read that he told the Jews who were now convicted over their sin and feeling the burden of unwashed guilt. What should they do? Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Peter told them to respond to his message. And we're told in verse 40, with many other words that he testify and exhort. He told them to respond to his message by repenting and by being baptized. Get a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but it's in the context mentioning baptism in this passage. So it is this body of souls who heed hear the message first of all and who heed the message and who obey the message who are who then repent and they are baptized verse 41 these are the people whom verse 47 calls the church they are added to the church and they are therefore become part of the church more directly on point still here, though, is verse 39. Notice that Peter implies something. He says to the Jews, he gives them a reason, an encouragement to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The encouragement is, you Jews should respond to the gospel call. And then Peter quotes from their own scriptures. From Genesis chapter 17, that famous chapter of the covenant being made with Abraham. Chapter 17 verse 7, where God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And Peter picks up on that and quotes it back at them in his Pentecost address. You may be familiar with, it's also that these, that form of words is similar in what was given to Noah as the Noahic covenant after uh, the flood where God promised, and lo, I behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you. And that promise to Noah was that there would be no more flood and the people of the world, all the descendants of Noah, or to hold the promise there will be no more judgment by water. But with Abraham, the terms of the covenant are quoted by Peter on Pentecost. Why does Peter do that? Why is Peter bringing in something from the Old Testament on this day of the fullness, the first day of the fullness of the New Testament, when the Spirit is given in great measure to the church, when he is preaching under the inspiration of the Spirit. Yet he rests his appeal to the Jews upon something from the Old Testament. Well, he does that because Peter believes that the same covenant of grace that he is preaching under the fullness of the New Testament on the day of Pentecost had first of all been given to the people of God long before in Genesis 17. And it was a, there was one covenant, a covenant of grace to sinners. 
and there is one church therefore. In Genesis 17, what you have in effect, if you think of the kind of the, the nucleus forming of the church in the Old Testament, you think of Genesis 17 and the promise made to Abraham. The same as if you think of the, of the formation more formally of the New Testament church, you think of Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost. There's a parallel between these two sections. The formalizing, if you like, of the church in each testament. But in the New Testament where it is given, it is formally, deliberately rooted in the same promises as were given in the Old Testament. Peter does not bring before them saying, here we're going to do something different, we're going to set up something new. He doesn't bring before them this idea of church as a brand new entity. He doesn't say, now, what's gone before is over, we've got to set up something new, we're going to call it the church. He presents instead the same old promise they had had for thousands of years. He says it is still applicable, it still matters, it applies to the church of Jesus Christ. There is then an essential oneness between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and the church in both Testaments. And to confirm that, if you like even more, you could return to the words of our Saviour, which we already mentioned in Matthew. Jesus was speaking then of a church before the day of Pentecost, especially the Matthew 18 example, that they should tell it to the church as if it was already in existence. Otherwise, his words would have been impossible to understand by his disciples. He said to them, go and tell it to the church. If church wasn't in existence until Pentecost, what was he talking about? He is telling us uh, to do what, what to do when a brother sins. But what is this strange word he is using? Church, we don't know what it is. What is this unknown concept he is mentioning? If there was no church until Pentecost then Jesus is using a nonsensical term to the disciples. And if he is referring to an Old Testament church that is entirely different from a New Testament church, then his advice there as to what to do in discipline doesn't apply to this new body because it's not the same as the old one. But clearly, Christ intends that his words are to be used in the dispensation of the church until he returns. And we still base our discipline today upon that passage in Matthew 18. There was then this idea of two churches is not scriptural. So we begin with this point, there is one church. Secondly, a wide church. One church, then wide church. Notice what Peter is doing. In setting out the terms of communion, you might say, for the New Testament church in verse 38, what do they do, do about it? They are to repent and be baptized. And Peter backs that terms of communion for the New Testament church with the Old Testament promise to Abraham in the very next verse. For, I can say this to you, you should repent and be baptized, for the promise is still in effect. The promise made to Abraham still applies to you, you should repent. 
You should believe in Jesus and you should be baptized because there's a covenant promise that still applies in your case. In the day of Pentecost, the promises of the Old Testament are still in force. Otherwise, Peter is wasting his time quoting from Genesis. They're still in effect. They've not been set aside. They've not been abrogated. They've not been annulled. They've not been overtaken by events. They're still there. And he's still using. In fact, Peter, with this great opportunity of thousands of people under conviction of sin, he is prepared to rest his entire appeal to these needy souls gathered round him that day on the abiding validity of an ancient promise made thousands of years before to Abraham. He could say to them, of course there is still hope. Yes, you've crucified the Lord. But of course there's still hope. Of course you can be saved. Of course there'll be mercy given to you because the promise is still there. And you're still bound up within it. That's why the Jews of Pentecost, they were assured that they would be welcome to come into this body that professed Christ. Though with wicked hands they had crucified and slain the Lord of glory. Yet the promise, the covenant was so powerful. It was so reassuring. It was so embracing that the promise could still be applied to them. Peter could appeal to it and say, look men, you're not beyond the scope of grace here. That old promise still stands. They were the seed of Abraham. That's what they were, literally. We have Abraham to our father, they said. That was mentioned in the promise so long ago. They were the children of Abraham. And so they could now, with the warrant of God's word, they could rest the weight of their eternal destiny on being Embraced within the promise of hope. Where they wanted to repent. These wicked men. Did they have a license to repent and seek forgiveness? Would God uh, receive them? Or were they just going out on a whim? Were they just uh, seeing as it were. Drawing a bow at a venture. Hoping against hope. Or did they have a warrant? They had a warrant. Because the matter had been decided long ago. God included them in that very promise that he gave to his servant Abraham. They were in it. They were there. It's a wide church, isn't it? You can stretch from Pentecost all the way back. Notice, the children of Abraham are still counted as being within the promise even after Pentecost. Those say, oh well, the Jews thing was over and done with and then the New Testament came and nothing to do with the Jews but here, on the very first day establishing the New Testament church, Peter still says no. Jews' promise still stands. They are not cut off. Even after the full New Testament age has begun. In fact, the grounds of them being within the promise is actually the basis upon which the New Testament church really takes off. It gains its first mighty foothold in the world and thousands are converted through that promise. 
through the abiding validity of an Old Testament covenantal promise. If the promise of Genesis 17 was now over and done with, because that's Old Testament stuff, if that promise was no longer in force, Peter could not have appealed to it in Acts 2, in assuring these poor, convicted sinners that there was hope. What do we see? We see that the New Testament church, the church by definition operates on the basis of a covenant promise to you and to your seed, to you and to your children after you. That was the basis upon which the church sustained itself throughout the whole centuries of the Old Testament. The Jews could say with the backing of God's word to their children, now, we were there at Sinai. But the promise applies to you too. You are included within the scope of it. This covenantal arrangement where God said, we were his people, you have the same, we can apply it to you as well. Given first to our father Abraham, then to Isaac, then to Jacob, the patriarchs, and then to the sons of Israel, the tribes. Then reaffirmed at Sinai to Moses. How did the church survive century after century in the Old Testament when it had no call at all to go out and evangelize the world, to bring in the lost that way? How did it propagate itself? How did it endure from one century to the next? And the answer, of course, is that the church then was parents and children and the children became parents within the church and their children then were born and they became parents within the church and successive generations the church was propagated by the family lines. And each successive generation was every bit as much the church as the one that had gone before. Every bit as much included within the promise as the one that had gone before. Now that's not to say they were, not, they were all saved, certainly not. But they remained within the body of Israel, identifiable as God's people upon the earth. And so we consider them, rightly, part of the church in the Old Testament. Now we come to the new. That method of sustaining the church, is it done away with? Is it dropped? Is it removed? Well, absolutely not. In fact, it is appealed to by Peter himself on the day of Pentecost. The abiding relevance of the covenant promise to you and to your children was depended on by Peter at Pentecost as the Lord used him to build up his church that day. What was he saying to them? He was building this, the church on the basis of the promise that they were in fact included. The New Testament church had not cut itself off from these promises. It reaffirmed them. It was not that Peter said, well, this window is closing, you know. Okay, you're just about scraped into it, but after you, it's had it. You're the last generation. The promise is now just to you, but not to your children. You notice that Peter speaks in the present tense. There in verse 39. The promise is unto you and to your children. In other words, it remains. 
It is not a promise that is about to vanish and die, but one that has abiding validity. The New, church, the New Testament church, or the church rather in the New Testament, from its inception, was clearly defined as including the children. Now whatever you go on to think about baptism and the rite of baptism, the church was always seen as including the children. That was the Old Testament way. That was the Old Testament method. And Peter applies it in the New Testament without batting an eyelid. Without missing a beat. He just assumes rightly that it is still valid. That's the wide church of this second point. The church is not only adults who believe. The church was never that and has never been that. Nor were children dismembered from the church by Pentecost. Part of something until then, and then suddenly find themselves being dissected and cut out of the church. What an awful thought. That little ones who until then were part of something. Part of a promise from God. That they were in fact the church. That they were under blessings that they were suddenly and brutally divorced from the hopes of Israel and made into strangers from the covenants by the coming of Christ and his spirit. That would be completely antithetical to the whole ethos of the coming of Christ, to broaden and not to divide, not to limit and restrict. The church in the New Testament, just as in the Old Testament, included the children of its members. It's a wide church. The church did not curtail the privileges of the Old Testament. It did not restrict access. That would be a very strange view of New Testament blessing. Now, thirdly, time is pushing on. It's a welcome church. We can go, you see, even further. The New Testament we have seen keeps the Old Testament method of propagating. That is, to you and to your children. Covenant promises and blessings. Not presumption, but blessings. Promises. But it adds a new means to sustaining and growing the church. A new warrant is given to the church by Christ in Matthew chapter 28. That is not just where we go to for the warrant for baptism. But significantly it is also where we go to for the warrant for what we call the great commission. To go out into all the world. To every creature under heaven. And to tell them the good news of Christ. And that expansion of the church's responsibilities and means by which she is to sustain herself and grow is picked up on by Peter here again. Listen again to verse 39 where he is quoting this Old Testament promise. Because Peter quotes it but he also expands it. He says, For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God would shall call. What's that little extra bit? The promise is to all who are far off too. 
That is, those who are called in the gospel. That is, where the gospel sound goes, and therefore the call of God reaches, they are under the promises of this gospel. That is the New Testament mandate in its action to reach out and to tell and to bring the promise of God to the needy. So the church then does not only continue by one means or the other, either by evangelizing or by reaching uh, or by uh, propagating through the natural generation of the families within the church, but by both. The body, this body, this church, is a welcoming church. That is, its arms are outstretched to others to be gathered in. We are not just a closed society where we say, there's us and our children, and we will hold our small corner against all comers, but no one may come in. The church is wide. Wide enough to include all the generations of a family, but is also welcoming to include those who have no father or mother that were in Israel. They too are welcome to come in to the church of Christ. So we have these two methods given to the church by which she can add to our numbers. There are those who are saved under the preaching of the gospel having never heard it before, not been brought up under its promises at all. And there are those who are brought up from their infancy under the promises of the gospel, under the sound of the mercy of God, and who are drawn in and brought in through the grace of God, still working saving in their life. These are the two means by which the church is to add to her number. Now, this is nothing to do directly with the election. The elect is known only to God. But his means of gathering them into his church are by covenant promise. And the covenant is here said to be to our children, to us and to our children, and to those Arafaro. So the covenant promise is expanded in its scope in the New Testament. The church has a mandate to expand the promises that she's been offering her children all along, to those who have never heard the gospel and to those who are not yet part of the visible church of Christ. What a wonderful way then for the church to grow. Now, how are we to keep our register, if you like? How are we to know what are the bounds of the New Testament church? Well, we can say, well, it is those who are brought in either because of promises, they've embraced the promises from infancy or because they've embraced the promises in adulthood. Both are valid. Yes, exactly. But is there some formal way by which the church is expected to recognize those who are joined? And we say there is. And so fourthly, it's a watered church. Notice again the words of verse 38. Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Then they that gladly received his word, verse 41, were baptized. Water baptism. 
Repentance is the spiritual condition of entrance into the church. Into the spiritual entity, if you like, that is those who are united in faith, by faith to Jesus Christ. There is to be a work of repentance and faith in the heart. But there is also an external aspect of the church. There is a visible nature to it. We are not privy to know exactly who has and who has not repented. We cannot, we're not given infallible signs of repentance. The church is not given infallible judgment over the reality of someone's repentance. But baptism is the outward profession of belonging. That is afforded to all who are part of the church, either by covenant promises in infancy or covenant promises in adulthood. In either case, baptism is the means by which they are formally recognized and added to the church of Christ. It is the mark of entrance and belonging. To the church of Christ. Different groups have their own different initiation ceremonies. You might have a kind of uh, clubs that have some sort of elaborate uh, ritual to go through. You might have uh, businesses that have some set training that they will go through. But the church of Christ is a watered church. That is, the water of baptism is applied to those who are considered members of the visible church of Christ. Baptism is our badge, if you like. It is our mark of belonging to this one church, this wide church, this welcomed, welcoming church. It is to be a watered church. There is to be this mark applied. So we need to understand the doctrine of the church and then we're better placed to go on and consider the matter of baptism. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray.